Huh. Go. Yep. A yin. Which means so we refer I. picture I. Watch. No or she. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me my oppressors. Ensure your servant's well being. Let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love, and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment, that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong act. Okay, let's see here. That was uh, 119.121 today. Um, let's see here. We have uh, uh, two prayer requests. Ryan needs work. Poor Ryan. I talked to him on the phone a couple days ago, and uh, he's because of what's going on up in Canada with the uh, COVID crisis, he does not have work right now. And uh, so we, we talked a bit, and uh, we'll get him through this, and uh, we'll just pray that Ryan can get some work. And then Bruce's daughter is expecting twins. They are apparently not doing well. So we want to keep them in prayer. And then um, I mentioned it on Sunday. I have not gotten a report since then, um, I don't think. But uh, Easton, the little baby, was uh, had a really rugged start to life and uh, uh, had an MRI that was all okay. But it, it, they were weaning him off morphine. And uh, I don't know the status, but we should probably pray for that child because, uh, you know, just until uh, I hear that he's at home and doing well, it's kind of difficult. Um, and then we also have uh, Saturday night. Please don't forget to turn your clocks back, okay? Um, I think that if you don't turn your clocks back, you'll be at church an hour early. Is that correct? Or will you be, okay, you'll be an hour early. That's okay. Just sit and wait. If you forgot to turn your clocks back, it's not my fault, so just sit and wait. And um, church will be uh, on time, even if you're not. And uh, so there you go with that. That's uh, last warning before Saturday on that. And uh, we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll read this day in Christian history. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to pray for these people and any others that uh, I'm forgetting right now. But uh, we certainly lift them up, and we ask that you will uh, be attentive to those things and help us. Uh, each of them meet their needs, whether it's a job or whether it's health or whether it's for the uh, unborn babies. We would pray that these things would come about uh, to your glory and to the happiness of the people that are affected. And Lord, we certainly pray for this class and we ask that it would be something that would bless others and that it would be doctrinally sound and that if there's something that is not correct, that that would be uh, alerted to us so that we could uh, overcome that and, and not have something that is inappropriate taught in this class. That would never be our intent. Lord, we thank you for the chance to have this class, though. It is a wonderful thing to share in your word with others and how good it is to be in the presence of uh, our Lord Jesus and, and just to uh, revel in you while we are looking in your word. We pray these things and we pray them in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. President. The what? Oh, yes, we got to pray for our president, too. We'll do that. Um, I'll make sure that I remember to do that on Sunday at church. But uh, 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 yes, we want to lift up uh, the president, the election in general, not just the president, because if we get a president with a House and a Senate that are Democrat, they could just go ahead and make his life completely miserable, and uh, which they're going to try to do anyway. But we will pray for those uh, things and 
maybe we'll do at the end of the class if we have a time before we close. John, but we'll do. We got the new All right, we're very happy we have a new justice. Um, if they get the uh, majority in the Senate um, and uh, it, they get the uh, presidency, then we will only have two. Uh, two uh, branches of government because they will pack the court and the court will be under the auspices of the Democrat Party of the U.S. And so this nation will change very quickly if that's the case. So we do want to pray about those things. But right now we're going to read this day in Christian history. And today is the, I think the 29th. Anybody know? Okay, 29th. All right. And we have, I've got to be in the right month. I got the right day, but the wrong month. So we don't want to do that. Let's see here. October 29th says... How would you like to have a godly theologian lead your nation? On October 29, 1837, a son was born to the pastor of the Reformed State Church in Massa Lewis, the Netherlands. His name was Abraham Kuyper, but his family called him Brahm. Growing up in a pastor's home, young Kuyper felt himself more repulsed by than attracted to the church. Yet, when he enrolled at the University of Leiden, he took the pre-theology curriculum. At this time, the theological faculties of the Dutch universities were being overtaken by modernism, which exalted human reason over divine revelation. <clears throat> Kuiper did not escape this influence. He entered the university a person of orthodox faith, but within a year and a half had become a religious liberal. Right before he was to enter the Leiden University Divinity School in 1858, his favorite undergraduate professor encouraged him to enter a theological essay contest comparing Calvin's view of the church with that of a Polish reformer named Jan Lasky. Kuiper scored the library, scoured the libraries of Holland for the writings of Lasky, but found almost nothing. When he was about to give up his search, he suddenly found that his professor's father had the most complete collection of Lasky's writings in all of Europe. Kuiper Attributed this discovery to a direct act of the living sovereign God, and it had a profound effect upon his life. For the first time, he began to experience doubt about his liberal theology. The next major event in Kuiper's religious pilgrimage was reading an English novel given to him by his fiancée. It was The Heir of Redcliffe by Christian author Charlotte Mary Young. Kuiper so identified with the proud hero of the story that when the hero knelt and wept before God with broken and contrite heart, Kuiper did the same. The transaction that occurred at that moment, Kuiper would only understand later. But from that moment on, he found himself despising what he once admired and seeking what he once despised. The final step in his pilgrimage came to his first past came in his first pastorate. And his church was a group of individuals of low social status who knew more about the Bible than he did. They had a Calvinistic worldview that he envied, even though he had a doctorate in theology. The debates Kuiper had with these folk proved to be short-lived because before long they had convinced him that the Bible taught God's sovereign grace. He later wrote, Their unremitting perseverance has become the blessing of my heart, the rise of the morning star for my life. The wisdom and faith of these simple people taught him to find rest for his soul in the worship of a God who works all things, both the willing and the working, according to his good pleasure. Now fully embracing Orthodox Calvinism, which we do not hear, but we'll get into that in a minute, Kuiper held the major pulpits in Utrecht and Amsterdam, taking up the cause for private schools. 
He joined the anti-revolutionary party, which opposed godless revolution and made Orthodox Calvinism a political force. Eventually, he became the head of the party and, beginning in 1874, served repeatedly as a member of one or other of the houses of the Netherlands legislature. He edited his party's daily newspaper and wrote 16,800 editorials for it. In 1880, Kuyper and others founded the Free University of Amsterdam, dedicated to a Reformed theology. Kuyper became the professor of systematic theology. In 1886, Kuyper led a break from the state church, founding the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. In the subsequent years, he did his theological writing, authoring the Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology in 1898, Calvinism in 1899, and the work of the Holy Spirit in 1900. In 1901, Abraham Kuyper became prime minister of the Netherlands, holding the position for four years. As prime minister, he was used of God to shape a nation. Reflection. God created the institutions of church, state, and family, all three. So many Christians just seek to represent God in one or two of these. Uh, That's exactly what we were talking about before we opened. We got John Piper, who's also leaning in Calvinistic views, and he's saying you shouldn't be voting at all, not for either, because they're both bad choices. And he is so wrong. I, I will never listen to John Piper again on any issue, ever. I mean, not that I ever listened to him to begin with, but if I hear anything of his name, it's going to be put in the recycle bin. Um, Abraham Kuyper was the supreme example of the well-rounded Christian who represented God in all three. Have you neglected one or more of these institutions? Determine that you will seek to represent God in all three. And they say, show respect for everyone, love your Christian brothers and sisters, fear God, show respect for the king. So there you go with that. Um, Calvinism is simply wrong, on, especially in its five principal points. TULIP, you know, T-U-L-I-P, which is total depravity and uh, unlimited, uh, what is it, unconditional. Uh, uh, anyway, I can't remember right now. I didn't come here prepared for a talk on Calvinism, but I will tell you that um, people will say Calvinism is a heresy. And you need to understand what a heresy means, okay? Take it to its simplest form. A heresy is it's something that will keep the next person from being saved, okay? And teaching Calvinism is not going to keep anybody from being saved. It will teach them to live a very miserable life in Christ, I believe, and you'll have very unsound theology. But the fact is that Calvinists preach that you were saved by grace through faith. Their idea of how that comes about is incorrect, Okay, it's not really heretical, but there are a couple of the five points that will lead you to where you could start teaching a heretical doctrine. So you got to be really careful with it. But I'm not one to go pointing fingers and saying you should never listen to any Calvinist at any time. R.C. Sproul was a Calvinist, and he was one of the greatest teachers on other disciplines that I've ever known. I mean, Christian philosophy and the nature of God, the guy was just great at it. So you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I always, I said this to Jim when he said, I'm going to go to a, a talk where R.C. Sproul will be at. It was a conference. And I said, well, when you go there, make sure you punch him in the head first and then give him a hug for me. And that's the way I look at the guy. He's he's very well rounded in some areas of his theology and he's way off in left field on things like uh, Calvinism. But if you don't know what Calvinism is, just go do a 15 minute read up on it. And if it sounds like good theology to you, Email me as to why you think so, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. But I didn't come here today to talk about that, okay? And I, I wasn't prepared in my mind. But there are five principal points of Calvinism, and each one of them follows off on a very strange path. 
And uh, the reason why is because they deny one principal tenet of biblical theology. What is it? Free will. If you deny free will in man, and I'm talking about, now they, they won't deny free will. They'll say, oh, you have the free will to do this and that, but you don't have the free will to choose Christ, okay? And everything else you have free will, and, and you are accountable for your sins, but you're not accountable to choose Christ. And that's just utterly ridiculous. You know, they use the verse um, uh, that you are uh, dead in your sins. And they say, you have no more power to bring yourself to life than a rock, okay? And that's one of their arguments, is that you cannot choose Christ because you're dead in your sins. And that is what's called a, I say it all the time, it's a category mistake. This is one category, this is another. We are dead in our sins. We are not dead beings. We are cognizant beings. We are, are hopefully using our brains to think life's issues through, and God gives us a choice. One of the uh, points of Calvinism is what is known as limited atonement. Jesus Christ died for some people. That's the T-U-L, the L on tulip. Jesus Christ died for some people, but not for all people. His atonement is limited in scope. And that's incorrect. Jesus Christ died for every single person on this planet, without exception. It doesn't matter who you are. He died for everybody. However, that is known as unlimited atonement. His death is enough to satisfy every sin of every person that ever lived. But not all people are saved. And so how do you reconcile the two? Unlimited atonement and limited atonement. It's that Christ has potentially died for every person on this planet, but he has actually died for those who receive him. So it is limited atonement actual. Limited, it's unlimited atonement, potential limited atonement actual. And that's the problem with Calvinism is they don't take things to their logical conclusion. They stop at a certain point, And because of that, they teach that, you have to be regenerated in order to believe. That's being born of the Spirit. And then you believe, and then you're saved. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Being born again is being saved. And that is one thing that happens, and it's because you used your brain, and you said, Jesus Christ died for me. I'm a sinner, and therefore I accept that Jesus Christ has died for me, and so I believe that. Your mind, has, your mind has changed. It has yes. done something. Yes, well, we, we would say that it's a repentance if you believe before that he didn't die for you, okay? If you've never heard of Jesus, you can't yeah, repent of that, true. okay? So I don't want to throw in repentance. That's a completely separate issue, but go ahead. You've got them right there. Read them off. Total, total depravity. depravity. Okay, total depravity. What they're talking right. about there is Calvinists will say in total depravity that you are totally marred. The image of God is totally, totally erased in you, and you have no ability to receive God or the things of God. That's insane because people all over the world are seeking after God. They're doing it wrong. They're seeking after the wrong God, whatever, but they are seeking after God. So total depravity, what that means is that and, and I agree with total depravity, but not their de definition of it. Their definition of, of it is that you cannot seek after God. What the Bible teaches is that we are totally depraved and that the image of God in us is effaced. It is not erased, okay? We are still in the image of God. James says that. You curse your brother who's made in the similitude of God. So total depravity means something different to a strong Calvinist as it does to a moderate Calvinist or somebody that, you know, wants to be taken away from that what they teach. Okay, so what's the next one? Unconditional you. Election. Unconditional election. All right. 
Next one is L, limited atonement. After that is um, irresistible. irresistible grace. God irresistibly calls the people that he uh, uh, is going to save. You have no choice in the matter. You, you are going to be saved, and I'm going to do it because I'm sovereign over all things. And that's not true. The last one is perseverance of the saints. Yeah. Okay, which perseverance of the saints means once saved, always saved. But how do you get to that point? It's not the way that Calvinists teach it. They say that God puts a shield around you, and you will never be lost, and you will persevere as a saint because God has allowed you to. Rather, God has saved you. And because he has saved you and because he knows all things from the end from the beginning and God does not make a mistake, it means that you are saved based on the choice that you made. Regardless of whether you persevere or not, he will have you persevere because he has already done the work in you. You are converted. You are a new being, even if you don't live up to that, like 2 Peter 1, 2 through 9 says. You can even forget that you were saved. You can be so far gone that you forget that you were saved but you were saved. So Calvinism takes those and they twist them and distort them. And I, I didn't come here to talk about Calvinism, but because I read that, I don't want anybody that's listening to think that we're a bunch of Calvinists here. We're not. The, it's, in my opinion, if you had it on a scale of one to 10, it's about a three in proper theology. It's, it's poor, but it is what it is. And so you have to, from time to time, address it. But for right now, we're in the book of Galatians and we are going to uh, start in verse four, Nine. So let me turn there before you uh, start reading, and then uh, the yeah, the wherever you want. Which is eight. Eight. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, by nature, are not God. Nine. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them? all over again okay it says the same thing but i like the way they say this one it's older english and it's kind of fun to listen to but now after you have known god it, it's a done deal that one says no god okay but despite that how is it that you have that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements which i think is kind of cute the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in the bondage so it basically says the same thing but it's just kind of a cute way of saying it okay four nine comment um, in response to his previous statement, which he read, verse 4-8, Paul now directly questions the Galatians. The word but implies a contrast. They did not know God, and at that time they served things which by nature are not God's. Okay, what were they doing? Just as a question, what were they doing before they knew the true God? But what were they doing? Searching for God. But what he just said, they were searching after God. They were just doing it wrong. They were doing it the way all humans do. We just go all over the place, and without God actually revealing himself to us, we're just we're, we're going to think all kinds of crazy things about God. But the point being is that man seeks after God. That's all there is to it. Calvinism says that man cannot seek after God. Man can seek after God, and man does it wrong all the time. And there's a difference, okay? Calvinism just, I, the reason why I brought that up is because we were talking about Calvinism. People all over the world are seeking after God. They want to know God. Okay, only a fool would say, I know there's a God out there and I'm going to purposefully pursue him wrong. Okay, that would be a stupid person. Okay, I'm going to purposely pursue him wrong. But people are miseducated. People are brought up in homes that believe one thing. They're brought up in cultures that believe another thing. But wherever you go in the world, I've been all over this world. I can tell you everywhere I've gone, people are pursuing God. They're doing it wrong or they're, they know they're doing it wrong, but they don't know what to do about it. 
You know, I heard one time, I think I've said this in his class, and if I have, I hate to repeat myself, but uh, a guy was a missionary to China, and a guy came to faith in Christ, and he said, my father, his whole life, knew that there was something out there that he needed to do, and he didn't know what it was. And I know that this is what he was looking for. I know that Jesus Christ is the answer. And he said, why couldn't you have come a little bit sooner? Because he knew that there was something that God had done to reveal himself in a special way. And one, that's why we send out missionaries. Because if you're a Calvinist, what's the point in sending out a missionary? If God's grace is irresistible, and if he's going to save the elect, regardless of whether they want to be saved or not, why even go down to the projects on Saturday and talk to people? Doesn't make any difference, because can God's will be thwarted? Absolutely not. Okay, it can't be thwarted, and so why even bother? Why waste your time sending missionaries overseas? Just have a big church and talk about Calvinism every Sunday, and you know the rest of the week just go home and do your own thing. Doesn't make any difference. It's crazy theology if you think about it. But that man knew that there was a God, and he was trying to find him somehow. There you go, point in case, or case in point. He understood that there is a God out there. People are seeking after God. They're just doing it wrong. And that's why we have Bible studies. That's why we send out missionaries is so that they can do it right. And hopefully we do it before the Jehovah's Witnesses get in there and teach them wrong to start off with, because then you've got to either undo everything they've done, or you're going to be spending the rest of your time in front of these people debating with people that are, hate to tell you, Jehovah's Witnesses are really well trained in their theology. They know what they're talking about from what they have taught, okay, what they have been taught. They may not know what the Bible says properly. That's not what I'm saying, so don't shake your hand at me. They know their theology very well. They know it very well, and it's very hard for you to convince them otherwise because it's so ingrained in them. I'm not saying that they're taught properly, just like Calvinists. Calvinists know their theology very well. They just don't know what the Bible says about it in the proper way. Okay, same thing with the Mormons. The Mormons know what they're teaching. Most of them. I'm not saying all of them. I'm talking about the ones that actually go out and, and evangelize people. They really know what they're talking about, but they are talking about it incorrectly. So there's a difference in these things, and we have to keep our mind uh, on that particular aspect. Um, in an attempt to be either reconciled, let me read that again. At that time, there was no knowledge of the true God and how to serve him properly. Just like that poor guy in China that knew there was a true God, he didn't know how to serve him properly. Like people from any pagan culture, some may have known there was a God who created all things. Aristotle, we talked about that last week. He knew that there was a God that created all things. He knew much about the nature of God. He knew more about the nature of God than probably anybody in here, okay? And I'm talking about the, the, the thinking through the, the obvious nature of God because of the creation. I'm not talking about, you know, what we know from Scripture. I'm talking about God is pure actuality. There's no change in God. Most Christians don't know that. If you say that to God, they say, well, God gets angry. God gets, you know, God gets, uh, uh, yeah, he relented or he repented or whatever translation used from the Bible. And they think that that means that God has a change in him. Okay. That is anthropomorphisms. That's the Bible speaking about God in a way that we can understand. There is no change in God. Aristotle understood that, and 99% of the Christians in the world do not understand that. God is impassionate. He doesn't get happy. He doesn't love more or love less. God is love. God is merciful. God is grace. God is uh, just. God is righteous. I'm talking about the God that created all things. Before he created, 
There is no change in him, and he is still the same God to this day. I, the Lord your God, do not change. There is no change in God, and Aristotle understood that. God expresses himself in ways that we can understand, and we are the ones that change in relation to him. And then you bring in the God-man Jesus, and so you have to ask the same question twice. Can God die? No. Can Jesus die? Yes. Can God cry? No. Can Jesus cry? Yes, he did. He wept. Can God learn anything? No. Did Jesus learn? Yes. He learned, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men, etc. So you have to ask the same question twice when you're talking about the God-man because he came for a purpose to do a set thing from God. But the God of the Bible is not like most Christians perceive him. Okay, And so there are people out there that, like pagan culture, some have known there was a God who created all things, but they only had the knowledge from general revelation. That was Aristotle. Yes. Romans 3.23 Romans 3.23. Yeah, none that's so what's your point about that? Well, I want you to said, tell me. You said that these people are seeking after God. Okay. Are seeking after God. Okay. Who is he referring to? In 3.23? Yeah. Who well, is he? I never read that. I just, well, I didn't know that where is he? Where is he quoting that from? You're you're citing it. You got to tell me where is he? Psalms, um, Psalms fourteen, I think. Fourteen, verse one, and what does it say? The, the, the fool, fool says in his heart. So he's speaking about the atheist. You got to keep it in its context. You take a verse out of its context, and all of a sudden you got a pretext. Who wrote that? Who wrote that psalm? Uh, I never went back to look. David. Well, okay. And so, what was David doing? Was David not seeking after God? His whole life is a testament to seeking after God, wasn't he? So he can't be speaking about all people not seeking after God the way that Calvinists imply. See what I'm saying? You have to take it from the original context or it becomes a pretext. Let's go there really quickly. But I'm glad you brought that up. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but you're trying to put me on the spot. And so, yeah, Psalm 14.1, or it's also in Psalm 53, verse 1. Psalm 14.1, here it is. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Okay? The fool said in his heart, no God. There is, is just inserted. No God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. He's speaking about the people of the world that have no fraternity with God. They have no love of God. They hate God. And we'll talk about hating God in this week's sermon. Why do people hate God? I'll give a couple very brief reasons why people hate God. But... He's speaking about people that say there's no good. They want to deny God. And they may have been in the covenant people of Israel all over the world. Chuck Schumer, you think he believes there's a God? Because if he did, he wouldn't be doing the things he's doing, would he? He hates God. Because if he loved the God of the Bible, he would be doing the things of the God of the Bible. But he's not. So David is speaking about the fool. People like that that say in their heart there's no God. And then he's making a sound, reasonable argument as to why he is saying that. So when it says no one seeks after God, he's not speaking about everyone in the absolute sense. He's speaking about the people in that category that he's referring to. Definitely. Because people all over the world are seeking after God. They're just doing it wrong. Okay. So it, Surely there's several verses in the Bible that tell you that people should know that there's a God. Absolutely. One John 1, 9. Absolutely. All over there are hints of people that are doing things, the things of God, having the law written on their heart. And they do it apart from 
the law of Moses. And what, what does Paul say? Their conscience is excusing, now accusing. Okay, so they understand the nature of God and they understand that there is a God and that they're accountable to him. And this is all over the world, people doing that to some degree or another. So what David is saying has to be taken in the context of where Paul took that. It has to be. And I, I'm sure that if we went to my commentary on that, I say that in that commentary, is that this is has to be taken within the context of what Paul is trying to convey to us. Not in an absolute sense that there's nobody on this planet that doesn't seek after God because people are seeking after God. That's why people are walking down the road and what do they do when they get to a church? They've never been in a church in their life. And what do they do? They're having a bad day. Their wife has been yelling at them. The dog died, etc. What do they do? They walk into the church. They're looking for comfort and they're looking for it from what? Stucco on the wall? No, they're looking for God. Okay, people will go to Buddhist temples and they'll seek after God. They may, you know, think they found him and they may think they haven't found him. And if they haven't, then they'll walk on somewhere else. But people will come to a realization of something in their head and they'll say, I found what I need. Okay, but the fact is, unless they found Christ, they have not found what they need, but they are seeking. Okay, anyway, that's just my answer to that. If, if uh, somebody brings that verse up to you and they say, well, see, Calvinism says this and the Bible says that, then take them back to where it came from. Psalm 14, 1, he's speaking about the atheist. But it cannot be true in the absolute sense because, as I said, David is writing and he is a man from the very earliest days of his life sought after God. You, you come to me and with a sword and a spear and a javelin, and I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel the, or the hosts of Israel or whatever. Um, so, he was a person that sought after God. He, he even said in the Psalms, I think it was him, maybe it was the sons of Korah, my soul longs for you, okay? He, they just, these people wanted to know God more and more. Anyway, um, it, does that answer enough? Yes. Sir. Okay, good. All right. Um, now I lost my place. Okay, here we are. I'm just going to go back a little bit. They had no specific knowledge of him, God, as the Jews did. The world has general revelation. Okay, they have the tree, they have the stars, they have all of these things. And as I said, you have, and I'm just bringing them up just to make a point about these things. Aristotle sat down and he thought about the nature of God. Okay, he's outside of the covenant of people of Israel. He's come before the time of Jesus, and yet he understood the nature of God. And then he started to say, well, if God is like this, then there must be beings that are like this. And if there are beings like that, then that means that we're like this. And he was able to identify all these different things within the spiritual realm and in the world itself. And he thought about those things. And these are things that we don't think about ever until I went to SES, right? And studied under Norman Geisler. I never thought about those things. Not in a million years would I have thought, well, God is pure act and we have potential. And we know that. We all know we have potential. We just don't know what it means. Okay, I have potential. My beard is growing and this book is someday going to get cracked and old. And, you know, all these things can happen because it's a part of the material universe. That's what he's talking about. I'm talking about Aristotle here. But he's doing that from the sense of general revelation. Okay, that means what God has created not God himself. We can deduce things about God from what he has created. Okay, so here we go. I'll read that one more time. Like from any pagan culture, some have may have known there was a God who created all things, but they only had the knowledge from general revelation. All these things around us, you know, the nature of the stars and the heavens and all of these things, we can make guesses about what God is probably like. And he did a very good job of it. Okay, but they had no specific knowledge of him as the Jews did. 
This came through the Jews. It says that even in the book of Acts, the oracles of God came through the Jews. Now, that doesn't mean people will, I want to qualify that right now so that people don't say all scripture came through the Jews. Can anybody tell me how we know that that's not true? Luke Okay, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts, okay? Was Luke a Jew? Because I know people that will say he must be a Jew because of, how do you know that Luke wasn't a Jew? Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, that's correct. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take you there right now, just so that you can see that. And then from that, you will understand that Luke was not a Jew. So just because it says the oracles of God came through the Jews, which is true, and he's speaking about the scripture that was already written, it doesn't mean that everything after that is going to be through the Jews. And it's not because it says right here in Colossians chapter 4, let me take you down here, then it says, um, uh, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoners, greet you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. Okay, he just made a list of the people that are of the circumcision. That means they're Jews, okay? They have proved to be a comfort to me. And now he goes on and he talks about other people, meaning these people are not of the circumcision. Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning the, the Colossians, a bondservant of Christ greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, still in the same category, not of the circumcision, the beloved physician and Demas greet you. Luke is not a Jew. Anybody that teaches you that, you might as well just turn them off right now, okay? Because I've had people try to defend, even after having the obvious evidence in here, that Luke is a Jew, he was a proselyte, he was this and he was that. There's nothing, nothing to support any of that. Luke was a Gentile. He did the research. He wrote the gospel. He wrote the book of Acts. That's all we need to know. We don't need to get into all of these speculations about how he is a Jew or how he became a Jew or any of that. Paul says he's not. It's long after the time of the book of Acts or while it's being written at least, whatever. And uh, so we just, we don't need to go beyond that, okay? If people want to tell you that he was a Jew, just turn them off. Okay, here we go. Um, for the most part, such people, these are people outside of the covenant. They are not Jews who received the oracles of God. For the most part, such people served those which by nature are not gods. That's Paul's words. In an attempt to either be reconciled to the God they were sure existed, or to appease the gods they thought controlled their lives and destiny, they served idols. As I said, all of these people are searching after God. They think that God is like this. They think that God is like that. Here's another good proof that people are seeking after God. Okay, I think I cited this last week. Maybe it was two weeks ago. In the book of Acts chapter 17, they have a, a marker that is dedicated to unknown. the unknown God. They know there's a God out there that is not known by them. And so they made a monument to him. And Paul walks up to the Areopagus and he says, listen, you even have an idol to, or a, a marker or whatever he said to the unknown God. I'm going to introduce you to him. And he introduced them to the God of the universe who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And it even says that some of the people believed. Okay. Anybody know the name of any of them that believed? There's one name. Damaris. Isn't it Damaris? I'm just, I, I think it is. 
uh, let's see here. We're going to, what? No, 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 no. Acts 17. And I think I'm right. I, I, I could be wrong because it's been a while since I've read Acts. I haven't been in there for uh, several months. But uh, right at the end, it says some of them believed. And it says, um, yeah, Damaris. Uh, However, some men joined him and believed among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, or Damaris, Damaris, I don't know how you pronounce it, anyway, and others with them. So there you go. You have two people by name and other people that believe. Paul introduced them to the God of the universe and... They received the God of the universe. Okay, so um, let's see here. They serve by those by nature those which are not gods. In an attempt to either be reconciled to the God they were sure existed or to appease the gods that they thought controlled their lives and destiny, they served idols, just like we just saw in Acts 17. They became slaves to these false gods. They were under a type of bondage to them in that they felt obligated to them through sacrifices, rites, gifts, and so on. And we see this all over the world. I don't care if you go down to Mexico or if you go down to Peru or if you go over to Thailand or wherever you go, there are people that are serving idols everywhere. I mean, everywhere you go, there are people, go to Japan. I mean, we go down, you know, especially in Tokyo and there's everywhere you got these temples and stuff and people go up and they, they, they're, send money they put money in there and they pray and you know some of them fertility god writes and once a year they have the fertility festival it would make you blush to see what the people do i'm not kidding you know what i'm talking about hitiko the fertility festivals uh, anyway it's things that you would read about in the bible but they actually still do it to this day okay and these women that can't get pregnant and they anyway um if you don't know what i'm talking about and it's you know you might think oh, it's not much but to me it's just kind of Anyway, just type in for uh, uh, Japanese Fertility Festival into the internet and just see what they're doing. And they think that's going to get them pregnant, okay? It's not. It's nothing perverse. They're, they don't, they, it, I mean, you can look at the pictures. It's just bizarre. That's all I can say. Um, anyway, so uh, they became slave to these false gods. They were under a type of bondage to them. They felt obligated to them through sacrifices, gifts, rites, and so on. When they heard and received the gospel of God's grace in Christ... They were freed from these things. This is what Paul is writing to the Galatians about. This was you, and you were freed from doing those things. They were no longer under bondage, but were liberated to serve the true God as sons of, with the promise of a full inheritance. Okay, so they were in bondage, not to the law, but they were in bondage to their own laws. They were in bondage to their own temples and their own sacrifices. And he's saying you were freed from this, okay? From this thought of where they were, and where they had now come to in Christ, Paul will next show where they were heading because of the lies of the Judaizers. Now, if somebody is watching this video right now, because I know none of the people in here right now are Hebrew Roots Movement people, but if you're watching this or if you have started watching these and you say, well, I'm, I believe in Hebrew Roots, I'm supposed to observe the law of Moses. This book is written for you. It is written for you to understand that think of your life where you were. Before you came to Christ, you didn't know anything about the law of Moses. It didn't exist in your life. It wasn't a part of it. And you did whatever you did in this life. You may have, you know, done yoga, you know, and meditated or transcendental meditation. Or I don't care what goofy thing you did. We've all done goofy things in our life. And you did something. You pursued God in your own mind in some way or another. I mean, that's just what people do. Okay. And then all of a sudden, somebody came up to you and they offered you Jesus. And you heard the message of Jesus. Everybody think of, you know, when you came to Christ. And all of a sudden, you felt free. 
because you knew all the times you were doing things seeking after God in whatever way you were seeking after God. You're not the atheist that's being spoken of in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 14.1. You're somebody that just believed there's a God, but you tried to do things. Maybe you were nice to people because you thought this is going to make God happy and he's going to let me into heaven. Um, uh, you know, that's a couple weeks ago, I talked to a couple of people, and I think I mentioned that in this class. I might not have, but I, I've been seeing them every day for years, and finally I just stopped and I said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And I asked him, if you die, how are you going to get to heaven? He says, well, I've been a really good person. Okay, that was his answer. Okay, and he's old, so he's got to make a choice now. You're a really good person. What does that mean? He was thinking, I've been good so that I can go to heaven, right? I mean, that's the logical assumption. He's been a good guy. He hasn't been a bad guy because he knows there's a God. He knows he needs to be good in order to get to heaven, all right? Regardless of the fact that he already has original sin, he thinks. And so that's the God he's been serving. It's himself. He's been serving himself, trying to please himself. I'm going to be good enough so that God will accept me. So actually, it's himself he's been serving, hoping that God will like him. Okay, so having said that, that's, we'll say that that's him. That was you. I've been a good guy. Okay, and then you hear the message about Jesus and you say, I'm free. I don't have to worry if I'm good enough anymore. I don't have to worry if I helped enough old ladies across the street or if I did enough of these things. You feel that freedom that comes from Christ. And all of a sudden you say, I am saved. Jesus died for me and I'm saved. And what is Paul going to do with that? He's going to say, and you want to go back under something that is bondage? Less than what happened to Christ? That's who I'm talking to right now. It's the Hebrew Roots Movement people that think that they are somehow going to be more pleasing to God than the day that they came to a realization that they were saved by Jesus Christ. How can you do it? How can you do more than what happened to you on that day? Because Christ had done everything for you. He had done every single thing for you to reconcile you to God. And now you're saying, I've got to go do more. It's impossible. And all you're doing is you're shaming what happened to you in the first place with Christ. You are degrading the person of Jesus Christ in the eyes of everybody around you, and you've already done it in your own eyes. You, once again, are exalting yourself above God. You have become the idol. Okay, so that's what's happening here. I don't need anybody to email me things about keeping God's commandments and all that kind of stuff. Every time they do that, it is out of context. Always. This is the freedom that Paul is speaking about, and this is what he wants you to know. Not anything else at this point. He will explain all of these things as we go, but here it is right here. Okay, read that again. When they heard and received the gospel of God's grace in Christ, they were freed from, the, from these things, all the things that they were doing, whatever it was, okay? They're freed from them. They were no longer under bondage, but were liberated to serve the true God as sons with the promise of a full inheritance. From this thought of where they were, and where they had now come to in Christ, Paul will next show where they were heading because of the lies of the Judaizers. He is making a logical defense against the insertion of the law of Moses, which they were never under. If you're a Gentile, you were never under the law of Moses, ever. It applied to one body of people in human history, and it was fulfilled in Christ, and it was set aside in him. You were never under that law, and now you are trying to reinsert that law, or actually insert that law into your theology after having received the grace of God in Christ. They're trying to reinsert the, or insert the law of Moses into their lives by showing them where they had been in their own lives. Life application. <clears throat> we all started somewhere in our walk towards the true faith in Christ. Some of us were raised in Christian homes and our walk was short and direct to the throne of grace. Others of us traveled long roads of false worship, finally ending at that same marvelous spot. 
However, however we came to him, we were freed from the ineffective types of worship that permeate both the law and the misdirected worship of false religions all over the world that we talked about a minute ago. All over the world, people seeking after God, they feel comfortable in their search for God, they stay there, or they continue to look for God. Either way, they have not found the God of the Bible who has freed them completely and given them grace. Only in Christ is the true and free expression of worshiping God realized. Only in Christ. Why would we want to give up on that and return to something less than what Christ offered? Okay? And once again, when that happened, God didn't just suddenly zap you. You spent your life walking around looking for him, and you realize that he has done the deed for you in Christ. You had to hear the word. You had to hear the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If Calvinism, I'm going to revert back to that for a second, were true, you wouldn't need that. God would sovereignly regenerate you and he'd tell you what he did for you and you wouldn't need the Bible to do it. But nobody would admit that in Calvinism. Not a single Calvinist would ever admit that God's going to walk up to somebody, and I'm talking about spiritually, spiritually walk up to somebody in Africa and say, I sent my son to die for you and now you're saved. You don't need the Bible in order to know that. Every Calvinist will say you have to hear the word of God. Well, if that's the case, then obviously free will is a part of the process. Obviously. Okay? Because if it wasn't, we wouldn't need this word. It would, it would be irrelevant. God would just sovereignly go up to that guy in Africa and say, okay, you're saved, and now I'm telling you all the things that you need to know about your walk with Christ. It doesn't work that way. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we do these things is because we've been commanded to do them. And the reason why we've been commanded to do them is because we have choices to make. There would be no point in commanding anybody to do anything if this wasn't true. Calvinism is just failed theology, okay? Oh, um, where are we now? Um, ending. You know what I've been doing, though? Um, I've been reading my notes from 4.8, not 4.9, and you read 4.9. You did. Huh? I, I know, and I've been reading my notes from 4.8, so you got last week's uh, uh, notes again, but that's okay. I'm going to read you 4.9 now, okay? And I don't know why I did that. Oh, it's because you started with 4.8. That's, that's I did it. Okay. I'm not blaming you. It's my brain. He read 4.8 in my brain. Okay, so all right. something that people that are Hebrew Roots, whenever they're evangelizing, if in fact that's what they do, they're never going to say, Jesus died for your sins and your salvation is due him. That's and right. You, you have, have to, to observe the law. Like That's you, right. They always add that in later. Yeah. Yeah. They like always add that in later. That like, it is a trap. Well, it's just like any other cult. Yep. Yep. Okay. Four nine. I apologize. You got to hear, hear last week's stuff, but it was only a short bit of notes. Most of it was talking about things that were brought into the the equation. So okay. In response to his previous statement, four and nine. Now, Paul now directly questions the Galatians. Oh, and I did start on it. I got. I, I started on, I and we got into a tangent. Okay. No, I'm not. The word. No, I'm definitely not. The word but implies a contrast. They did not know God, and at that time they served those things which by nature are not gods. Okay? Now, in contrast to this state, he says, but now after you have known God, and the word known here is not the same as in the previous verse. Instead of ignorance, they have now obtained knowledge concerning God. Okay? So, and yet to qualify the thought, he says, or rather are known by God. God has testified that he knows those who are his. This sentiment is exactly described by Paul later in 2, yes, 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. Let me take you there and read what he says there. You can see how consistent Paul is in his theology. 
hang on a sec here, 2 Timothy, and then 2, in verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Okay, that's a real good argument right there. Before I go on, 2 Timothy 2.19 is a great argument for people not accepting the doctrine of license. In other words, you're saved and so you can do whatever you want to do. Free grace, okay? Free grace is true. Grace is free and you can't add anything to it. But some people will say that free grace automatically leads people into license. No, the Bible says no, okay? God knows who are his and let everyone who is called on the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you don't, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. And that's the mistake that people make and they John MacArthur, for example, Lordship Salvation. If you haven't made Jesus your Lord, then, you know, you're obviously not a saved person. Well, that's a completely separate issue, okay? He's putting the cart in front of the horse, and he's saying, now start pushing, and it doesn't work that way. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that you're saved, Paul says, guess what you need to do? Depart, Depart from iniquity, Okay. If you don't, you are the one that's going to suffer. You're not going to harm God. You're not going to harm God at all. You are the one that's going to suffer. You're going to suffer in this life. You're going to suffer with, you know, uh, all the things that happen in the sin in your life. If you, you know, keep being filled with iniquity and drugs, the drugs are going to eat up your body. If you keep uh, being filled with iniquity with adultery, your wife's probably going to kill you, etc. Those type of things are going to happen to you. There is a consequence for your sin. But the Bible never promotes license. And that's a mistake that people make, like John MacArthur, and they get off on a wrong tangent because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to appear soft on sin. And so they go too hard on the results of what should happen, and they put them before the reception of grace. Okay? And you can't do that. So, 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul's qualification of his first words are because it is God who has sent forth the spirit of his son into their hearts. That's Paul's words there. God has known them and testified to the fact that they are his by the giving of his spirit. And because of this, they have moved from bondage to freedom. Okay, that's what we were talking about a minute ago. I'm glad we did that, that verse 4-8 again. I'm glad we did that because it helps us to remember what we talked about last week, and it's important to understand that. Paul is making a logical defense as to why you are not to insert the law into your lives. And without that today, we probably would have been kind of lost without this. So I'm glad that I made that mistake. Anyway, um, uh, God has known them and testified to the fact that they are his by the giving of his spirit. And because of this, they have moved from bondage to freedom. Now, to show the utterly absurd nature of what they are doing by accepting the premise of the Judaizers and inserting the law into their lives, he asks, how is that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? What was the words you used in yours? This... Uh, mine was, uh, how do you enslave by them all over again? Okay, so they're enslaved by them. This one calls them weak and beggarly elements. Well, not enslaved. What was before that? He gave a term. Uh, okay, let's see. It's, uh... Turning back to those weak and miserable. Miserable. Okay, I like beggarly better. It's like you're you're hungry for something. You're begging for something. Miserable. You're just sitting in a state of yeah, yeah, absolutely. The what? Yours says worthless. Yours is like his. Miserable and well, miserable. You're in a state. Worthless is that they have no value. And beggarly is like you're you're actually asking for it. Okay. Anyway, and they're all. I'm sure. 
I, you know, I don't know which is the... the worthless elementary things. Worthless things. elementary things. Okay, is that what it says? Worthless elementary? Okay, see, that's why it's nice to have these different versions is to see how different translators translate them. Anyway, um, uh, where was I? Weak and beggarly elements is what he calls them. Okay, Paul is incredulous that they would give up on the marvel of being reconciled to God through the grace of Jesus Christ and turn back to the law. And actually, they're not turning back. As I said, they're turning to the law because they never had the law in the first place. Some people may have had the law if they were Jews, okay, and they've come to Christ, and then they turn back to the law. And that would be, you know, the people in uh, the book of Hebrews, all right? They're turning back. These people aren't really turning back. They're turning to the law, okay? The law couldn't save a single Jew in all of human history. Not one Jew was saved by the law of Moses. Does everybody here know that? Not one Jew was saved by the law of Moses. It could not save a single Jew in all of their history. It only showed them how sinful their sin was, and that they needed something else. Paul spoke of the dilemma of being under the law in Romans chapter 7. Oh, it's marvelous. I love these verses. I've already quoted them probably 10 times in the Deuteronomy sermons, and I'm going to keep quoting them because uh, it's just such a wonderful thing to tie into with the book of Deuteronomy. It is so wonderful. It's uh, verse uh, 722, Romans 7. I'm going to start with 721. I find a law then that is that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So I want to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Well, what does it say in the Psalms? We read them every week, the 119th Psalm. I delight in your word. Your word is, you all right, Burke? Okay. Um, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And that's what the psalmist says again and again and again. They delight in the law of God. All right. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my member. So he acknowledges, I love the law of God, and yet the law is bringing me into bondage, into myself. I'm in this bondage, all right? And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He understands that the law is nothing but a body of death. It is not anything that can bring life. Even if he loves God's law, it is a body of death. And he says, who will deliver me from it? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ died in fulfillment of the law. That's why we don't go back to the law and start observing the law again. All right. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Okay. So that's what's happening there. Paul says that Christ has freed us from all of that. Why would anybody want to go back under that? It is this type of dilemma that caused Paul to call the law and its accompanying precepts weak and beggarly elements. It was ineffective in bringing salvation. In fact, even if someone delighted in the law, as I said here, all it could do was make them miserable. The man under law may love God's law, but it would make them miserable. Further, the more they delighted in it, the more misery it would produce. But Paul notes to them that by turning to the law, it appeared that they desire again to be in bondage. They were in one form of bondage, the elements of the world, and now they want to be under another form of bondage, the elements of the law of Moses. One way or another, they're just putting themselves under bondage. They've already been freed in Christ. Wasn't freedom in Christ enough? Wasn't the reception of the Spirit sufficient? Did you first, or I'm sorry, yeah, did you find bondage that wonderful? Paul is stunned at the situation. If he were alive today, he would continue to be stunned. Jim is stunned all the time. He still debates these people on Facebook. This pernicious infection is still seen in God's people in one form or another 2,000 years later. 
people are still doing the same thing that they were doing at Paul's time. And we have the book written. It's in black and white, and it's so simple to read. Now, we get into deep theology, and we tie things together here. But if you pick up the book of Galatians, and you read it without any bias or presupposition, you will come to no other conclusion than that you are free in Christ, and you have nothing to do with the law of Moses. Nothing. And yet people twist it. They, they deny it. They call Paul a heretic. They say that his writing shouldn't be in the Bible. They make up all kinds of things because it's so obvious what the book of Galatians is saying. This pernicious infection is still seen in God's people in one form or another 2,000 years later. Countless souls have said Christ's work isn't enough. In so doing, they disgrace, disgrace that great and exalted name. And that's, I hate to say it, I know that people get angry at me for saying this, but John MacArthur is doing that by saying that you must have lordship salvation. It's putting the cart in front of the horse and it's disgracing what Christ did for you. He has given you freedom. He has given you complete freedom in himself when you call on him. Remember, just go back to what we talked about a minute ago. You're walking along life's highway. You've tried every avenue possible, or maybe you haven't tried any, but you know that God is out there and you, you feel miserable. And somebody tells you about Jesus and all of a sudden you find the answer to the problem and you're saved and you feel great and you go to church and you cry for three or four months and how wonderful Christ is. And then somebody comes and tells you what Paul is trying to get people to think through and they're not thinking it through. Life application. The law is annulled. If you don't believe me, go read Hebrews 7. Let's do it. Hebrews 7, 18. We'll go there first. We're just going to read it in case somebody's listening to this particular uh you know, uh, Bible study, and they think I'm making it up. Hebrews 7, 18, for on the one hand, there is the annulling of the former commandment. He's speaking about the law of Moses. Go read the whole passage if you want, but I'm just going to tell you, there is annulling. That means ending. It's done of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law of Moses was weak and it was unprofitable. Why would you go back under the law of Moses? For the law made nothing Perfect. On the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, which is what Paul is speaking about in the book of Galatians. Okay, then we're going to turn the page. One page, watch this. One, here, one page. Okay, and we're going to go to 8, 13. I only turned one page in that he says a new covenant, that's the Christ covenant, he has made the first, meaning the law of Moses, the old covenant, absolute. Lete. Does anybody here know what obsolete is? It comes from three parts. Ob means you must, so, very, and leet, observe. Okay, it doesn't mean that at all. That means it's done. It's over. It's out. Okay, he has made the first obsolete, the law of Moses. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now there's a reason why Paul said it in that tense. Does anybody know why he said it the way he did? He said he has made the first obsolete. So it's obsolete, right? And then he says, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, if it's obsolete, then it hasn't really vanished away. Why would he say that? Because the Jews are still under it. Because the Jews are still under it until they come to Christ, and they have been given seven more years to figure that out. They got seven more years. The timeline stopped when the temple was destroyed, actually when Christ died and fulfilled the law, but... From there, they're given seven more years under this Old Covenant to figure that out. But they're not going to get saved through that Old Covenant. They're going to understand their need for Christ, call on Him, and be saved. Okay, I'm going to turn one more page. Look at that, one. I went from one to another here. One more page. 10, 
9. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. The law of Moses is done. It is taken away. It is annulled. It is obsolete. And the new covenant has come in. He has established the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Burke's over there reciting it word for word. I love Burke. He just knows the Bible. Okay, so there you go with that. The law is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is set aside. So nobody can say, well, you know, it doesn't say that. You said that in your comment, Charlene. It's not true. There, I just proved to you it is. Okay, so um, uh, the law is annulled. We're in the life application. The law is annulled. Christ has come and fulfilled it, just as we just saw, again, in the book of Hebrews. Trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. That is it. Don't trust in anything else. Everything that you are to do, like what we read from 2 Timothy 2.19 a minute ago, is something that you are to do in Christ. Not for Christ, I mean in order to obtain Christ. It is when you are in Christ, and you are to do it for your own health, for your own good, and for the good of those around you. If you're not a good testimony to Christ, then they're not going to come to Christ. You're going to have an ineffective relationship with them if they are in Christ, etc. So, this is not for salvation, departing from iniquity. It is because you are saved. Do those things. That's what you're instructed to do. Okay, let me turn to 4.10 and then read that. And go ahead. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Okay, that's it? Oh, yeah, it is. Okay, uh, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So what's he talking about there? The, uh, the, um, Feast absolutely. days and all those crazy things. Absolutely. Paul now gets to the heart of what he means by his words of the previous verse concerning being again in bondage. The Judaizers had come in and confused the Galatians into believing that they were to be following Jewish practices. Okay, now one thing I want you to understand, uh, uh, I won't say who, but somebody's doing something right now and they refer to the Jewish feasts. And that is appropriate for today because the feasts today are Jewish feasts. Okay, they're not observing them in Israel as the Feast of the Lord. Everybody understand that? But the feasts in Leviticus 23 are what? The feasts of the Lord. They are not Israel's feasts. They are not Jewish feasts. And so when somebody uses the term Jewish feasts, unless they're doing it in the way that this person was doing today, they're, they're doing something or talking about the Jewish feasts of the day. Okay, but they are actually feasts of the Lord. If somebody is giving you an analysis of the feasts of the Lord, Okay, they want to give you an analysis of Passover. They want to give you an analysis of, you know, uh, first fruits, or if they want to give you an analysis of the Day of Atonement. If they call them Jewish feasts, or if they call them feasts of Israel, don't bother watching. Don't bother reading. They have already gotten the very first premise. At, let me take you there so you know what I'm talking about. This is in Leviticus 23. If they have made that first error, then everything else that they say about their commentary We'll follow that, and it will be wrong. So here we go. Leviticus chapter 23. If they can't get the most basic part of the feasts of the Lord right, then they got everything wrong. I assure you of that. It says right here, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy covenants. These are my feasts. Leviticus 23, 1. They're the feasts of the Lord. So if you get an analysis, I don't care who it is. I'm just going to give a name, and I have no idea if he's ever done an analysis on the feasts of the Lord. But if 
Dak Hibbs or Andy Stanley or I don't care who it is, if they come out and they say, I'm going to do a 10-week series on the Jewish feasts or a 10-week series on the Feasts of Israel, or if R.C. Sproul were to have done it, I don't know if he did, but if anybody did that and they said, I'm going to do it on the Feasts of Israel, I wouldn't watch even one of them. Don't waste your time because they started out on the wrong premise. These are the Feasts of the Lord. They have nothing to do with Israel except that Israel was to observe them. They have nothing to do with the Jews except that the Jews were to observe them. They are the feasts of the Lord. That premise right there has to be stated properly or everything else is wrong. Yes. Well, they are. They're spring and fall feasts. So that's that's fine. Right. But they, they are the spring and fall feasts of the Lord. That's right. They're not Israel's spring and fall feast. Israel observed them, but they are the feasts of the Lord. And that is why... Is that important? Let me ask you, why is that important? The book says so. <laughs> well, yes, it says so because they are the Lord's feasts. Yeah. They have nothing to do with Israel. They have everything to do with the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment and embodiment of the law. Israel is not. Israel participated in the feasts as a picture of the coming Christ. If you make that equivocation, and that's what happened. There was a guy that, uh, I won't say who sent him to me, but sent, because they're in the church here, and I talked to her about him afterwards, but uh, she sent me the uh, CDs of a guy that did a series on the Feasts of the Lord. And he started out right. And halfway through the feasts, he equivocated, and he called them the Feasts of Israel. Why did he do that? Because he believes that the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled. And so he had to equivocate on it, because if he didn't, then he's saying they're the feasts of the Lord, and he would have to acknowledge that the Lord fulfilled all of them. All of the feasts of the Lord are fulfilled. They're not feasts of Israel, and they are not waiting for a future fulfillment. He has done them. They are done, okay? And so when I showed her that, I said, do you know what he did? And she said, no. I said, he equivocated on the meaning of the feasts in order to justify that the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled. And she said, you know, I never realized that. It's because you're not thinking that way. You're just thinking this guy is a scholar and he knows what he's talking about. He got a little bit of good in there and the rest of it was all very poor. Okay? That's, and I'm not trying, I'm not giving his name because I'm not trying to slam him. You know, he's doing his thing. We all make mistakes in theology. But if that is a mistake on the feasts, then just don't even bother with them because they are going to give you bad information. I am certain of that, okay? Anyway, the law is an old, Christ has come and fulfilled it, trust in Christ. Paul now gets to the heart of what he means by his words of the previous verse concerning being in bondage again. The Judaizers had come in and confused the Galatians into believing that they were to be following Jewish practices. Their lies included the observance of certain appointed calendar events. The word for observe is Paratireo. It is a stronger word than simple observance, as if someone were merely curious about a how a Passover cedar was conducted. Because we have at churches in America from time to time, people will observe a Passover. And they're doing it to learn about the Passover. That's all they're doing. Is they're just doing they're not saying you have to do this. They'll just have a cedar and they'll show, oh, well, when the Jewish people get together, this is what we do. And we put our bread here and we have the little youngest child do this, and you just are learning something. That is not what Paul is speaking about. He's using a hard expression to say that they are observing, actually observing these as if they need to do it. Okay. Uh, where is it? Um, it's a stronger word than simple observance, as if someone were merely curious about how a Passover cedar was conducted. Rather, it means to observe scrupulously. 
They were being duped into believing that they had to meticulously follow these calendar events. Hebrew Roots Movement demands this all over the world today. I've had people in Australia tell me I used to be in the Hebrew Roots Movement, and this is what they told us we had to do, and here we were observing it, and if something didn't sit right with me, well, it shouldn't sit right with you because this is the Feast of the Lord, and the Lord has fulfilled the feast, okay? They were told to follow these calendar events and to follow the practices of them as the Bible details, but guess what? Then they don't do what the Bible details. They start adding in all of the Jewish parts of the feast and things that are tradition out of the Talmud and all kinds of stuff. And people just make up their theology as they go and they get their people in their churches into what is called bondage. And they've got them hooked now. And they have to be there every Saturday and spend all Saturday in church and they have to listen to what the guy is saying. And It's bondage. That's all it is. Okay, the days. That's the next thing. Is specifically speaking of days of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's right. Of the weekly Sabbath observances. That is what Paul is referring to when he says days. The Galatians were told that this was the standard for a weekly rest, and they needed to follow it according to the precepts of the law. And there are people all over the world. We got some that apparently watch the prophecy updates and that even sometimes come to the Superior Word Church from other other places in the country. They visit and they believe that they have to do this stuff. I don't know how they could be in this church for five minutes and think, oh yeah, I need to do that. They go back to their church or wherever they attend and they do these things. I don't know. Anyway, the heresy has been handed down in aberrant cults such as the Seventh-day Adventists. They demand that you, seventh day, they're talking about the Sabbath and they don't worship on Sunday. They don't know you've got to be there all day on Saturday. And the Hebrew Roots Movement has people observing this as well. Paul is rather clear about this in Romans. Anybody, what chapter? I'll give you a hint. It's right after 13, but it comes before 15. Anybody? Oh, good. Carol got it. Romans 14. Okay. Romans 14, it says there, um, I think it's in verse 15. Where is it? Um, no, oh, I'm in, I got it right here. Um, yeah, 14.5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe it to the Lord, he does not observe it. So much for the Sabbath. And yet, as clear and as black and white as it is, they have to twist scripture in order to justify that they need to be there on the seventh day, which means Saturday. Okay? Months, you got days, now you got months. Months is speaking of the monthly new moon celebrations mandated for Israel. These are detailed, for example, in Numbers 28, 11 through 15. Let me take you there just because. We've got 15 minutes, and we might as well do it. Numbers 28. All right, where are we? Leviticus, Numbers 26, 27. There it is. Okay, and then we're in 11. It says, at the beginnings of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to observe the uh, monthly new moon festivals, you need to do it with the sacrifices, mm -hmm. or you're not doing it properly, right? Okay, so are these people, do you suppose these people are doing this? Uh, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil is a grain offering for each lamb as a burnt offering of sweet aroma and an offering made by fire to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be a half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen of uh, for a ram and one-fourth of a hen for a lamb. 
This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. And also kids of the goats as a sin offering to the Lord shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Do you think anybody in the world is doing that today? As it's No, of course not. And then okay. you say that you don't have to fulfill all of them and you don't have to do them exactly. It's pick and choose theology. It's That's like, all it is. Who, who picks and chooses? Yeah, who picks and chooses? Yeah. The Lord has spoken. You you the Lord has spoken what needs to be done on that day. If they're not doing it, they're in violation of the law they say that they're following. Okay. Again, the Galatians had been fed the crazy idea that they needed to follow this type of observance. So you've got the days, you've got the months, and then seasons. Seasons refers to the feasts of the Lord in Leviticus 23. Not the feasts of Israel, not the Jewish feasts, the feasts of the Lord. Okay, these included the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These are all fulfilled in Christ's first advent, and they are now set aside with the rest of the law. Okay, all seven or eight, because the Sabbath is called a Feast of the Lord, all of the eight Feasts of the Lord are fulfilled in Christ. They are done. Okay, if you don't know what the fulfillment is and you say, well, I've never heard that before, just go watch the sermons. Okay, they're right on YouTube. Go to the Leviticus playlist, scroll down to Leviticus 23 and spend a couple days and watch the sermons. And you'll see they're all fulfilled. Every one of them. They're done. Okay. However, the Galatians and those who fail to follow proper doctrine, even today, are misdirected by the nutty belief that observing these will make us more pleasing to God than Christ's fulfillment of them. Christ, that's why they're put in there. You go through these things in the Bible and most of these feasts are never mentioned again. Or if they're mentioned, they're mentioned 900 years later during the time of King Wakaniah, okay? And he says, we haven't observed this feast in, you know, since the time of the judges. And it's been 800 years or whatever. And so we're going to do it. And why? Because these were for showing us Christ. And once we see Christ in there, and once we see he's the fulfillment of them, we don't need to see all the details throughout Israel's history. The Jubilees people are always making predictions about the 50th year Jubilee. It's happened every year since I've been a Christian. This is the 50th year and this is the Jubilee. I've seen every year somebody's come up with an analysis showing us this is the 50th year. Well, it doesn't tell you, are the 50 years only from the time of going into Israel? We don't know what the first year was because we can't go by the book of Jubilees, which is an apocryphal book. It's actually a pseudepigraphal book. Okay, the book of Jubilees, if you know what I'm talking about, because the Jubilees were instituted when they got into Israel, the land, the land of Canaan, not before. So the book of Jubilees is just, it's a made up book, okay? But we don't know the year that they started the Jubilees. And then we don't know, does everybody know I'm talking about the Jubilees every 50th year they were to proclaim freedom and everybody was to, okay, go back to their own property. We don't know if those Jubilees were observed during the exile or not because they weren't in the land. So, and the Bible doesn't detail that. It doesn't tell you, so you don't know. And we don't know the first year, which is in the book of Joshua, when they started. And so we have no reference at all for when the Jubilee year is. And guess what? Everybody that's a specialist in prophecy every year comes up and says, this is the year of Jubilees, and it's going to be the rapture. It's going to be this, or it's going to be that. Don't read that nonsense. That's not the point of those being in the Bible. If it was, it would have been meticulously detailed throughout the Bible. And it's not. The point of those things is that we understand that Christ is the fulfillment of them. He is our jubilee. And everything about that mandate is fulfilled in him. Sound theology actually matters. And all of this stuff that people keep putting out is just a waste of time. 
It's just a waste of time. Understand that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these pictures. We got nine more minutes. We'll Ironic get... that I came to Christ. Your 50th year. Your jubilee was on your 50th year. That's very good. Okay, so we got the seasons. Feasts of the Lord. Um, where are the... Uh, we're go oh, yeah, we got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Fru First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. They're all fulfilled in Christ's first advent, and they are now set aside with the rest of the law. However, the Galatians... Oh, I've already read that. Okay, years. So we've got the days, we've got the months, we've got the seasons, and now we've got the years. Years would specifically be referring to the sabbatical year, every seventh year, and the years of Jubilee, which I was just talking about, the 50th year, every 50th year, which are detailed in the law. Again, Christ had fulfilled the law in their attempt to appear more righteous than that granted by Christ, the Judaizers, and the heretics who have followed them, the Hebrew Roots Movement, and all these other people pass on their fanatical ideas about following these obsolete observances. Paul addresses this again specifically in Colossians. Anybody know what chapter it's in? When we did the Leviticus sermons, what? You're right. You're right. Well, it's 15 and 16 and 17, I think, but that's okay. You got it right. Colossians 2 and um, but I'll start in 14 just in case. Uh, uh, why am I going? I'm going the wrong way. I don't know why I do that. It's like my brain is broken. Um, Colossians 2. Uh, I'll start in 14. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements, which was against us, which is the law of Moses. Okay, it's contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And here it is. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them, meaning the law in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, that's the dietary laws of Israel, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. What he's just speaking about here in the book of Galatians, he's telling you not to let anybody judge you by these things. In other words, you don't have to do them, because if you're being judged by them, that means that you're doing them, okay? Which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we're going to read that again. Festival. Feast of the Lord, New Moon, that's the, the first of the month festivals or uh, mandated things that they're to do, or Sabbaths, those three things, Sabbath, okay, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance of, is of Christ. If they were a shadow and the substance is of Christ, then that means that all of these feasts of the Lord are fulfilled, exactly as I just said a minute ago, exactly as the sermons I did on them say. So if people are looking for a fulfillment in them, they're looking in the wrong place because they've been wrongly instructed. There is no fulfillment of them to be expected. What we are waiting for next is the next big event in redemptive history, and that's called the, <laughs> yes, the rapture. That is what we're waiting for. Okay. Oh, you know what? I've got three or four more minutes. Let me finish this up. As he notes there, these things were only a shadow of the things to come. They only pointed forward to Christ. Now we have the fullness of what they only pictured. It is utterly ludicrous to think that anyone could properly observe most of these anyway. There is no temple, and thus there is no way that they could be observed properly. Thus it becomes, as Jim said a minute ago, pick and choose type of salvation. The entire premise of following these things is to be rejected. Life application, if Christ has fulfilled the law, then let us rest in the work of Christ. Okay, having said that, uh, really quickly, we've got just a couple minutes, and I just want to say this because it keeps coming up again and again and again, and let me take you there. 2 Thessalonians 
I, I've seen this at least eight times in the past week. I was just before, when Burke got here, right when he got here, I was responding to somebody on Facebook about this. The timing of the rapture. Okay, all I want is you to tell me out loud one of three words. Is the rapture pre, mid, or post? Anybody? Pre. 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 Okay, everybody here says pre. <laughs> Can anybody tell me why you believe that? With one one set of verses that definitively... Two Thessalonians. Two Thessalonians. You got the right book. Okay. And then it's in chapter two, two. You got the right chapter, and it's the first three verses. Okay. I'm going to read them to you. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming... Oh, um, I'm in the first epistle of Thessalonians. I got to get to the second one. Oh, now, brethren. Now, brethren Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So he's talking about the rapture. This is our being gathered to him, okay? That is the subject of what he is now going to talk about, but it is not the point of reference. It is the subject, okay? Gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ did come. The day of Christ, some translations say the day of the... Lord, that's right. So, day of Christ, day of Lord. Okay? But, and then once again, people try to divide that. I'm not even getting into that today. All we know is that the rapture is going to happen, and then Paul gives us the anchor, which is not the gathering together with him. The anchor is the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. Okay? Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. The day of the Lord is not going to come until the man of sin is revealed. That's the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the one who does what? He signs the treaty for Israel, a seven-year peace treaty, and that begins the tribulation period. He says, we're going to be gathered together before that happens, the day of the Lord. It is Daniel 9, 27. Go get that straight. The Antichrist is going to come. He's going to be a Roman. He's going to make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. He will not be revealed until we are gone. Okay? So there's no point in speculating on who the Antichrist is, and the seven-year peace treaty will not happen until after that. So our being gathered together to him will happen first, and then those things will come into sequence. That's all you need to know. You don't need to get into debates about... Somebody asked me, well, do you have anything on defending against a mid-trib or a pre-trib? I'm sorry, post-trib? And I told him, this is today. I said, no, I'm not even going to bother because the Bible tells us what is going to happen in the order that it's going to happen. So I just wanted to clarify that again, and I'll do it anytime you want me to. Just go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 3. The anchor that you are looking for is not the gathering together to him. It is the day of Christ, meaning the tribulation period. And that does not get initiated until the Antichrist signs the deal, but we're not going to know who the Antichrist is because we're being gathered to the Lord. Does everybody see the logic in that? There's no need to go any further on it. Zero. we got to pray. Heavenly pray, Father. Pray pray yes, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, study your word. And uh, I pray that people will forgive me for reading the comments from verse 8 again this week, but it was worth it because we got into some proper theology for verse 9 with that. But Having said that, Lord, we are coming to you as a, a gathering of people because we have an important election coming up next Tuesday. And it's an election that will affect every single believer in this nation intimately if the wrong person wins. And this is not about political parties. This is not about political agendas. It is about the freedoms that we possess 
that we can express ourselves to you in the way that we choose to do so and in honoring of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we would pray for your kind hand to be upon us in this election so that we would have the president that has supported this right of Christians for the past four years. We would pray that he would also be given the House and the Senate to further that so that we could continue on with the freedoms we possess so that we can, without fear of control by a party that only wants harm for us, that we would have President Trump reelected and that this would continue on in the years ahead as well. We know that you are sovereign over all things. We know that you already know what's coming and whatever it is, we're going to praise you through it. But this is what we pray for and we pray for it that you will be glorified and that we will be able to freely express ourselves to you in thanks. And we do so. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to put that on there. Okay.